Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species is a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. Recent podcasts, audio on demand and live streaming available from the 3CR website. All podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website and you can subscribe to the program via iTunes. I'm Kate Elliott. Welcome to the program. How is it the middle of the year is nearly upon us? June is just a little over a week away and for regular um, committed 3CR listeners who have been tuning in over the years, they would know that that means Radiothon time here at 3CR when we ask listeners to support 3CR in general, but also particular programs. Freedom of Species has a target, which is a little daunting right now, but um, I am confident we have got three weeks that we will reach it, but it's a target of... $1,600. Uh, that's part, that's uh, our bit of the the $220,000 that 3CR is hoping to raise over this Radiothon period. That's our piece of the vegan pie. Um, you could consider ditching the expensive meat and dairy in your diet and donating the money that you save. And not only will you get a health boost, but you'll be boosting 3CR's coffers as well. Have a think about it. It could be a win-win situation for your health and for 3CR. Well, a win-win-win situation, so a win for Freedom of Species as well if you donate to the program. Also coming up a little bit later in the year, but early in July, so that's just six weeks away, Melbourne will host the third Institute for Critical Animal Studies Oceana Conference. The theme of this year's conference is Conflict and Struggle, Resistance and Change. And today we get a sneak peek at what's on offer at the conference. We will be speaking with Dr Dinesh Wadiwell, who has been invited to give the opening night address at the ICAS conference. Dr Wadiwell is a lecturer in Human Rights and Sociolegal Studies at the University of Sydney. His research interests include sovereignty and the nature of rights, violence, race and critical animal studies. In today's interview, Dinesh discusses his forthcoming book, The War Against Animals, that brings together much of his academic writing exploring the way in which non-human animals are constructed within rights discourses and the possibilities for using contemporary theories of sovereignty to reframe our understanding of violence towards non-humans. In the book, he argues that our mainstay relationships with billions of animals are essentially hostile and that our sovereign claim of superiority over other animals is founded on nothing else but violence. So please stay tuned. That's coming up on the program. 
This is Izzy Brown from Combat Wombat. 3CR's annual Radiothon is almost here. At 3CR, we're calling to you to activate the airwaves by donating your money from the 1st of June till the 14th to 3CR's annual Radiothon. So keep 3CR active on the airwaves for another year. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference, so donate. Go online to 3cr.org.au or call us on 94198377. Let's do it together and support 3CR, truly independent community radio. Yeah! Welcome, Dr. Waduel, and thanks for joining us on Freedom of Species. It's really lovely to be here. And it's great to have you here. You have a long academic and employment history working on human rights issues, including disability rights and anti-poverty advocacy. When did you begin to turn your attention towards non-human animals? I suppose I've always been really interested in animals and this was from a teen when I was a teenager I made a decision to become a vegetarian and uh, animals and the way animals were treated um, were kind of deeply in my mind at that point. Um, it wasn't until I was in the midst of my PhD that I became more theoretically interested in animals. Um, I had read some of the classics like Peter Singer's Animal Liberation and um, Carol Adams' uh, Sexual Politics of Meat when I was an undergrad. But when I was doing my PhD thesis, I became... A lot of my PhD thesis was uh, focused on state violence and how we conceptualise the emerging forms of power of contemporary states. But in the midst of all that, I became really interested in, well, what does this all mean for our treatment of animals? And a lot of my academic work around animals has come from that framing. And we're very excited to have your expertise coming to Melbourne as the opening night speaker at the upcoming Institute of Critical Animal Studies Oceania conference. Where does critical animal studies sit within the academy? It's it's a, a relatively new. For the last decade, there's been a group of scholars internationally who've uh, worked under the uh, critical animal studies uh, banner uh, so it's relatively new, the movement, um, but it's, it's had a very strong focus on trying to firstly bring a really kind of critical voice to animal use and exploitation, to thinking about animals, um, and secondly, to try to maintain contact between academics that are doing work in universities and advocates and activists who are working in the field. So it's been quite a distinctive movement. Um, what we've seen in the last decade is quite a uh, large change in the landscape around uh, thinking about animals with the growth of animal studies or human animal studies uh, in the academy. So lots of academics have started to become interested in the area, but uh, critical animal studies scholars have taken a very strong view that um, we need to keep the focus on, on violence towards animals and be addressing the ethics of that, that violence and looking at the systems by which we use animals, including large-scale industrialised uses of animals and experimentation. So ICAT scholars have been really important in sort of trying to keep the focus on questions of exploitation and violence um, in this sort of growing field that's been, that we've seen internationally in, in academia. 
is there a equivalent approach in other academic fields that this has sort of grown out of? Is there a critical environmental studies field? Uh, yes. So critical often is used to describe the use of more critical theoretical approaches. So one example is scholars that might align themselves with, say, Marxist viewpoints are often seen as critical scholars. Um, in the case of critical animal studies, there's some important differences. So for one example is that I, I, I do some work in disability studies and there are a group of critical disability studies scholars that um, are interested in theoretical questions that go beyond liberal justice models um, and are sort of using some of those new frameworks to understand disability. Critical animal studies scholars are doing some of that, but one of the important differences is that I think um, ICAS has particularly tried to focus on making links with activists on the ground as part of its work. And I think this is quite distinctive for critical animal studies scholars, that there's always an awareness that um, whatever we're doing has to in some way translate to action on the ground, including the reality of how do we deal with large-scale uh, systemic forms of exploitation and violence. This is quite an exciting move, isn't it? It's almost like applied academia with introducing the activist side and the activist perspective into academic study. Yeah, it's, it is quite an interesting and challenging movement. On one hand, it's a really wonderful way to keep the academics uh, honest, if you like, um, and kind of aware of their own place in relation to um, advocating for change and continually trying to address activists and advocates while they're doing the work of scholarship. It's a tension and a balancing act in the sense that um, there's lots of difficult work that needs to be done in terms of thinking about how we actually respond to the problems that, uh, that we face in, in relation to the way that societies deal with, with animals. And uh, with that, um, you know, I think there's, there's also a need to, to make sure that we create that space to allow academics to do that sort of difficult abstract work, right? So in some ways, I think there's a bit of a balancing act. And the, the thing with uh, uh, managing that balance is ensuring that both there's a space for scholars to think in kind of quite abstract terms that don't need to necessarily be applied yet about how we actually deal with or think about violence towards animals but simultaneously find ways to constantly translate that to, to action at some point. So it's been a really interesting process watching this, this field of study develop and the kinds of tensions and the balancing act that has gone on in relation to how those scholars have found themselves accountable or not to uh, advocates and activists. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. I first became aware of your work when you presented a paper at the University of Melbourne Animal Studies Group. The paper was titled Do Fish Resist? And in some way the paper does introduce us to the concepts that you explore in your book, almost like a primer. What can studying fish resistance tell us about the way humans utilise animals? Look, I think um, it's an interesting one in that um, some of my recent work on fish is almost like an outtake for the book. So I'll talk about the war against animals soon, but uh, the, the, the book that is, that's coming out soon. But um, 
the thing that with fish that made me really interested was the fact that um, in some ways fish are the most uh, exploited and used of all animals that, that humans have contact with. Um, an organisation in the UK called fishcount.org.uk um, in 2010 tried to quantify how many fish do we use globally and they came up with quite staggering figures. Their estimate was that it, we're looking at between one and three trillion wild fish that are caught every year and perhaps up to 120 billion fish that are used for, uh, as a result of, of aquaculture or fish farms. Um, so the numbers are just extraordinary, but what to me is even more extraordinary is that there are very limited welfare precautions taken in the way that humans use fish. So the kinds of welfare uh, practices and regulation and law that um, uh, regulates how humans use land animals don't apply at all to how fish are used. And this means that the scale of cruelty and suffering, I think, that uh, happens in relation to human uses of fish is are just quite extraordinary and no one seems to want to talk about them. So I found this quite uh, shocking. And part of this for me was an interest in well, what is it about the limitations of our theoretical frames or conceptual frames that make it really hard to advocate for the welfare or indeed the rights of fish? One of the problems we have is that um, the, the science around fish suffering remains quite uncertain. So although we have strong, documented, uh, decades-old research in relation to the capacity of land animals to suffer. Um, we don't have the same uh, research, and importantly, we don't have the same uh, consistent agreement among scientists and the general public that fish, have, fish suffer, or more importantly, that the suffering of fish actually matters. So I was sort of interested in, well, what does this mean as a starting point? For me, that this is a kind of horrific situation uh, that we find ourselves in at least for those who are kind of interested in advocating for fish. Um, but I was sort of interested in, well, what is it about this situation and can we find a different way to frame this problem? Um, most of the listeners to this program will know that last year SeaWorld faced this uh, quite uh, intense, as a result of the documentary Black, Blackfish, faced quite an intense amount of media and public scrutiny around... Uh, um, the keeping of wild of of killer whales, and one of the one of the triggers for this event was the one particular killer whale who had uh, killed I think it was three um, uh, three workers in SeaWorld. Um, what I found really fascinating about this story was that um, in this case, what was being noted or recognised by the public and and the media was the fact that this killer whale had resisted. It wasn't that the killer whale was suffering, although I think people were concerned about the suffering of, of, of this killer whale. It was the fact that the killer whale had resisted and in some way demonstrated their own agency and their own uh, unwillingness to be subject to the domination of the humans that were keeping uh, this whale in captivity. And I think this is a really interesting... It gives us a really different frame to think about uh, the problem, and in a way it's a different frame from the predominant frame that, 
those often used both in animal welfare and animal rights discussions, and that, that is around suffering. So lots of my recent work has been kind of engaged with, well, is, is resistance a useful way to think about the problem? And if we think about fish as resistive agents, as agents that do not want to be used by humans, does this give us a different way to think about the advocacy challenge? Um, so there's some really different stories we might tell about fish resistance. The first is if we look at something like recreational fishing. Um, recreational fishing, so certainly most animal advocates would express deep concern about recreational fishing. So this is uh, catch and, and release fishing where um, people fish for pleasure and they catch, catch fish on a hook, uh, drag them in and then release them. And often, as the research has indicated, often uh, a large number of these fish won't survive this process. Once they're returned to, to the water, they'll die at some point if they're not already dead when they're, they're dragged in. What I find interesting, or at least morbidly interesting, about uh, recreational fishing practices is that it's almost directly a, a story of resistance between the human who fishes and the, the fish who is caught. Um, and this is often seen as the site of pleasure for recreational fisher, fisher people. And this is, of course, what is disturbing about recreational fishing. Um, one of the practices in recreational fishing is to drag out the resistance of fish to the line, so this is called plane, where uh, the fisher person will actively let the fish struggle against the line and, in a way, enjoy the process. And I've, I find this, of course, extraordinarily disturbing. But I think there's an interesting potential to, to think about this in relation to resistance because the story really highlights the fact that, in this case, fish who are caught uh, by recreational fishers fisher people, um, are not interested in being used by humans and they actively resist that form of domination. In an, another way to think about resistance that I've been finding really fascinating is to think about the growth of aquaculture as an industry. Um, during the 1980s, the world was facing a crisis in relation to wild capture fishery. And this was because literally humans had reached this point where um, they were overfishing large numbers of fish populations and the demand for fish uh, for human consumption exceeded what fisher people were actually able to do. This in turn led to the development, it created the economics that led to the development of aquaculture or farmed fishing. To me, this, this story is really interesting in how we choose to frame it. One view might be, and I think this is the view put forward by most uh, international agencies uh, and, and international fishing agencies, is that um, fish are in some ways passive creatures that are harvested from oceans. And what happened in the 1980s was that uh, humans reached the limit of their technical capacity to harvest these passive beings. A different way to read this is that fish are active, resistive agents that work in their communities to, like other beings, to thrive and avoid the, the forms of danger and violence that would threaten their, their continued existence. In this sense, I think the growth of aquaculture from the 1980s um, really indicates the success of fish themselves. Uh, in their own resistance of human domination. 
The reason I find this sort of framing really fascinating is that it gives us a different way to think about these problems, but also insert the agency of animals into the stories that we tell. And in this case, um, I, I do think, unless we maintain a kind of uh, arrogant position that humans are the only ones who are agents and that fish are just simply uh, passive beings who are harvested from oceans, if we take a different view, then we have to acknowledge that fish, in a way, are resistive. They actively shape their own destinies and they actively work against human forms of utilisation and domination. You're tuned to 3CR's Animal Advocacy Program, Freedom of Species, and that was a tune higher than this by Melbourne singer-songwriter Lilith Lane. I stumbled upon Lilith Lane playing in the Labour in Vain, which is just a few short blocks away from 3CR in Melbourne, one Sunday afternoon. And it's another reason why you should be visiting Melbourne to come to the ICAS conference in July. Not only will you be going a critical animal studies conference, you'll be able to catch some of uh, the world-renowned Melbourne bands uh, for free, I might add, at the many pubs around town. We're partway through an interview with Dr Dinesh Wadiwal from the University of Sydney, who will be presenting at the conference We'll return to the interview now where we start to talk about his forthcoming book, which is due out in August this year, titled The War Against Animals. The book is, uh, it's been a really long project and part of the impulse for the book was an interest in how do we understand our relationships to animals as a deeply structural form of violence. In different social movements, lots of thinkers have um, try to think through how do we understand institutions and structures that reproduce particular forms of violence against particular populations. One example of this um, is the work of many feminists to point out that uh, patriarchal domination is not merely reproduced by attitudes held by men towards other women, for example, 
but is reproduced by systems of violence, including the extraordinarily high rates of domestic violence and sexual violence that women experience in all societies. So many feminists, particularly radical feminists, literally said, in some ways we are looking at a situation where um, there is a war against women, where uh, patriarchy is, is only reproduced through systematic forms of violence that in some way get uh, tacitly approved by the state and other institutional forms of, of power. From that kind of standpoint, I became really interested in is there a way to think about this in relation to animals? Lots of animal rights activists for years have been saying we are at war against animals. In some ways, I think these statements reflect um, the... Uh, the sense of dismay that many animal rights activists have that wherever they go, they see repeated forms of visceral, symbolic, material violence against animals, yet no one else seems to notice. And I became really interested in in what way is our relationship to animals about this sort of deeply formed conflict, and it's so deeply formed and ingrained by systems of knowledge and uh, hidden within institutions such as factory farms that that don't, do, that don't display this violence for public view. These forms of violence are so hidden that in some ways it feels like we're talking about a war that happens but nobody seems to notice. And in some ways I think lots of animal rights activists have kind of reflected this, this dismay about this situation. Um, the book uh, is deeply influenced by a philosopher called Michel Foucault. And uh, so some of your listeners might have uh, might be familiar with Foucault and studied Foucault at uh, some point in their life. Foucault um, was really interested in power and its relationship to violence. During the mid-70s, uh, he gave uh, a series of lectures where he looked particularly at how do states acquire sovereignty. And in the midst of that, he made this point that, in a way, lots of the history of sovereignty and the, the rise of nation-states is essentially about um, the reproduction of violence. So states were often founded upon one army invading another country, um, often exercising extraordinary violence against whole populations, um, forcing that population to surrender, and then claiming sovereignty as their own. Um, we, in order to see an example of this, we need no, look no further than Australia itself. Um, Australian um, sovereignty is founded upon the dispossession of indigenous sovereignty, um, and this was through this act of violence. What Foucault points out is that, um, in a way, states uh, will be based upon this originary violence, and they will create terms by which those who they conquer have to effectively surrender to the inequality that that state will produce. So, um, for example, in, in uh, ancient times, kings would invade other countries, they would enslave whole populations, and then they would sign a treaty with that population which would ensure that they would continue to dominate that, that uh, enslaved population. What I found really fascinating about this story is that it really struck a chord to me in relation to how do we think about the war against animals? In what way is our own relationship to animals about a deeply structured form of violence that reflects this age-old form of domination? 
And in what way have we forgotten that um, lots of the things we do to animals are simply a result of our continued forms of violence um, against animals that even if we think that we enjoy friendly relationships with animals, in reality we enjoy something that is about a deep hostility. Um, lots of the book is really interested in just following through this point of view. And um, I'm really interested particularly in property relationships and the way that property emerges as, as a pretty important concept in trying to understand um, this, this deeply structured form of domination of non-human animals. Can you elaborate on that? Because property is just the first step. That property status is very much what many um, people are trying to leverage to get a better life for animals. But your theories and your approach in the book almost pull the rug out from this concept of just pushing for more um, animals not to be seen as property and to have personhood rights. Yeah, look, uh, I mean, I think some of these debates are really important and uh, we'll, we know that within animal rights circles, property has always been this contentious concept. Um, lots of advocates have made the point that uh, we uh, recognising personhood means uh, avoiding the use of property and avoiding property relationships over animals. Other advocates, and particularly in welfare, have pointed out that uh, property sometimes can be a useful way to secure animals from other forms of violence and in some ways property becomes a way to value animals and that's certainly part of the discourse of animal welfare protection. The view that I take in the book is that we, we need to kind of deeply investigate what the origins of property are and the way in which property isn't just about a legal status but an ongoing form of hostility, a hostile kind of relationship. I do this by reading a, an English philosopher called John Locke, and uh, Locke's view on property is one of the kind of important frameworks for how we understand property in contemporary legal and political theory. So Locke is this kind of really important figure. What really interested me in Locke's account and reading Locke's account really in a detailed way was the way in which he describes a world in which animals are converted to property not because humans are superior, but simply because humans prevail over animals with violence and then create this relationship of, if you like, bounded hostility with non-human animals. The thing that's interesting for me is um, this gives us a different way to interrogate property, not just as a legal status, but it's a peculiar form of relationship that, in a way, is bounded with the broad war, and war against animals that I'm interested in the book. All of this doesn't mean that um, I'm saying that it's bad to keep animals as pets, for example. And so it's, um, certainly one reaction to my work is often, Dinesh, are you saying that I can't keep a, an animal as a, as a pet? From my point of view, the book is about understanding fundamental political relationships. It's not about the individual ethics of what people do. And certainly lots of uh, fantastic animal rights activists I know have <coughs> really wonderful cultivated relationships with the animals that are around them. So the, the book isn't aimed at those relationships. It's aimed at trying to understand 
what is at the centre of property and is it just a legal status or does it actually tell us something about a fundamental relation? And from that point, I'm really interested in can we do something with property itself? Can we, can we move beyond that essential violent relationship? Another approach that you explore is the biopolitical. So rather than focusing power on in the context of territory or property, it looks at how power manipulates life itself. That's right, yeah. And um, so, so people, for listeners who are not familiar with biopolitics, this is another concept that came from Michel Foucault. Um, and in this view, he, he points out that um, if we thought about sovereignty in, say, the Middle Ages, largely sovereignty was about the exercise of brute force through violence. What interests Foucault is that increasingly in the modern period, you see states and governments and societies become quite interested in exercising power through the management of populations and um, often a sense in which um, the regulation of the life of the population becomes the kind of seat or the centre or focus point of power itself. The good news for this, and this is Foucault will make this point, is that states become interested in making populations thrive. So one example of this is that we have, you know, governments that are interested in, for example, preventing people from smoking or encouraging um, uh, prenatal screening, um, uh, encouraging through public health campaigns the liveliness, the livelihood of, of populations themselves. What interests Foucault, though, as well, is the way in which um, this logic also allows for um, whole populations to be subject to persecution or eliminated in favour of making other populations thrive. So he's particularly interested in racism, and he's particularly interested in state racism in the 20th century and why it was that um, whole states decided to... Uh, engage in, in forms of violence that included genocide where another population was seen as potentially a threat to the livelihood of, um, of the state itself. My interest in reading this has been in relation to what does this say about animals. Um, in some ways, animals are the ultimate biopolitical population. They're the ultimate in the sense that if we think about animals in industrialised food production, I can't think of any other creatures on Earth that we subject to the same round-the-clock um, invasive uh, regulatory surveillance-style controls from birth to death purely for their, their productive value as food. And I think there's something really kind of interesting about animals as biopolitical subjects and, in a way, animals as the population that humans keep in order for humans to thrive you know, through, through animals as food. So I think there's a kind of, for me, there's an interest in that, um, that story in the way that we think about uh, animals as biopolitical subjects and what this means for thinking about power itself. Um, with that, I think there's a really interesting continuing story about conflict and I suppose the main message of the book is to ask us um, to what extent are our relationships with animals not really friendly but essentially about conflict and 
I think when we look at um, human uses, industrialised uses of animals for food, to me this is about a fundamental conflict of interest. It is about uh, animals um, being placed in a position where their own interests are opposed to ours. While I was reading the draft of your book, I was in, <coughs> excuse me, I was in conversation with a few people about humane slaughter or so-called humane slaughter. And so while I was reading your book, I was also thinking of the equipment used in, say, a war. And when you're slaughtering animals, we subdued them through heavy machinery. So in effect, trying to make the, the death look like there is no resistance, that it's removing that resistance. Um, so we're using crushes and we're using stun guns to give the appearance that they're willing participants or if not willing, they're not resisting. But I was also wondering whether just as in war, there's also sort of psychological tools. So we're sort of almost winning the hearts and minds of people by the concept that you could have potentially humane slaughter. I think, uh, and this is one of the areas of the book I've become quite interested in, is to what extent is our relationship to animals um, not only a, about a material violence but a, a uh, symbolic or what I use, the term I use in the book, uh, an epistemic form of violence. And what epistemic is referring to is our knowledge of ourselves and our relationship to others and in what way are our treatment of animals really an indication of the fact that increasingly we fail to be able to have the kind of knowledge to understand what we do to animals and this is part of the process of war. So part of the process of war is that we increasingly just tell ourselves that uh, direct forms of violence such as um, stunning an animal before it is going to be slaughtered that this, this is not uh, not violence, in fact, it, it's, it's configured as something that is humane. So I think there's something really interesting about the way that knowledge uh, um, is part of the problem. And I, I, one of the things I find most perverse about our relationships to animals are the stories that many humans tell to themselves about uh, the apparent peacefulness of the way that they relate to animals but also the way in which fundamentally relations that look like hostility or war or violence get reconfigured as something completely different. And I think uh, most of the examples of humane killing seem to do this interesting trick where they appear as if they are not violent and in, in perhaps in the most perverse sense appear to be doing a service to the animal that is subject to that violence. And I, th- I find that extraordinarily perverse. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. Just 
That's Lilith Lane with her track Baby Elephant Print. And yes, if you're listening to the lyrics, when she was talking about Gina, she was referring to billionaire mining heiress Gina Reinhardt. But I think uh, given the media references there, I think it was written before Gina sold her $360 million stake in Fairfax uh, Media. But I will say that I don't think that she reinvested in uh, independent media. I don't think we saw any of that money coming our way, which is a nice little segue to, again, remind you that Radiothon is coming up. Radiothon will be here between the June the 1st to the 14th, and it's when we ask you to support 3CR so we can continue to broadcast independent voices on the airwaves. Independent voices and critical thinking like we're hearing today. Our guest on the show is Dr. Dinesh Wadiwell, and we're discussing his soon-to-be-released book, The War Against Animals. It's often put on the individual that it's a moral or philosophical problem, that it's a problem for an individual to solve, so by either choosing to be vegan or vegetarian or, or changing their lifestyle, rather than that it's a political problem when it's an institutionalised problem. Yes, absolutely. And I think, I mean, this is partly, this view is partly influenced by noticing the way in which um, some of the politics around animal rights and animal warfare uh, sometimes gravitate towards uh, individual-based responses, so a response such as... Uh, uh, taking on a vegetarian or vegan diet, changing your diet or um, choosing to wear particular clothes or whatever those sort of individual steps that you might take. Um, from my perspective, these, these are all important moves, you know, so I'm, I'm a vegan myself, I practice veganism, I think it's important. Um, however, um, the, the flip side of this is that strategically we need to do much more and certainly if we think about uh, something like uh, how do we tackle racism, it's not enough to simply tell people, well, we should stop racist attitudes. Um, actually, the, the problem of racism is a deeply structural form of violence and the way that we organise society, questions like how we treat asylum seekers, for example, are related to this. These all relate to the structural problem of how racism reproduces itself. We can't solve racism by just simply asking people to uh, not be racist in terms of their own personal conduct. We need to also look at the way that societies are structured and the way that reproduces racism. I think the same applies to how we treat animals. Um, we can all individually, and I think we all have to make our own ethical decisions about how we relate to animals, what we eat, what we wear. Uh, we, it's important that we have discussions about the ethics of of our own personal practices. But at the same time, strategically, it's really important for us to uh, be thinking about how do we dismantle uh, large-scale systems of violence towards animals. Lots of animal activists and advocates are doing this work, so lots of the impressive uh, welfare work that's done by advocates I think is really important in trying to achieve some of these changes. Lots of animal rights activists do really impressive work trying to intervene in sites of violence against animals. Um, but the book is really aimed at trying to uh, think uh, strategically and reframe how we think about our relationship with, with animals as a structural or institutional problem. 
One of the strategies that you do put forward in the book is the idea of truce, to have a day when we do not kill animals. Yeah. I, in the book ends with a few thought experiments, and in a way I felt like a lot of the book is um, abstract and it's sort of engaging with different conceptions within political theory, and I'm really interested in um, really teasing them out. So lots of the book is uh, not practical in a sense, it's, 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 it's conceptual. Uh, in the conclusion of the book, I try to think about, well, what does this mean for practice? One of the ideas, and it's a thought experiment at the end of the book, is to think about what would a truce in the war against animals look like. Um, in thinking about that, I became really interested in um, what would it mean for us to campaign for a, a day, maybe it's a national day or an international day, where we don't kill animals. What would this actually look like? The reason I find this an interesting thought experiment is that it's quite different from a go-vegan or go-vegetarian-for-one-day campaign. And the reason is because the go-vegan or go-vegetarian-for-one-day campaign is focused purely on individual practices. So the individual chooses to not eat meat for a day, and this, this, uh, this, this theory of change behind that is that this will change the individual and perhaps also lead to systems change. The idea of not killing for one day, I think, really shifts the problem to a different locale. Um, instead of focusing on personal practices, we would focus on the act of killing itself. And we would also centre the discourse around the moral wrong of the act of killing rather than the moral wrong of eating meat. And I think, to me, this is a really important strategic debate to have within the movement about where exactly the kind of moral, the centre of the moral wrong is. Um, from my perspective, thinking about uh, stopping slaughter for one day is really interesting in that it allows us to think about the different social movements we might need to work with in order to achieve that sort of change. One example is that increasingly globally, as food production uh, involving animals becomes more intensified, we're also witnessing a, uh, a set of movements around labour and particularly the rise of low-wage, precarious labour in the job of slaughter itself. To me, there's a really uh, interesting but challenging opportunity for animal advocates to work directly with labour rights activists to affect some change in the way that we both treat animals but also we treat humans in the context of, of slaughter industries. The thought experiment of ending slaughter for one day might be an opportunity for workers and animal advocates to actually work towards uh, something significant right, that would actually shift some of the discourse around how we treat animals. Dinesh, I did a little bit of research with the thought experiment and I came up with 1.4 million animals in Australia that wouldn't be slaughtered for one day if we were to have a truce. And I didn't want to go to a global level because, um, you know, my head or my heart would break probably. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's probably fair to say that we're looking at 65 to 70 billion animals that will be killed this year. So just as a final question, can you give listeners a bit of a teaser for your presentation at the Institute for Critical Animal Studies Conference, which is coming up in July? 
you are going to be doing the opening night presentation. So what can they expect? I'm really excited. Um, and I'm excited because I don't know what I'm going to expect. Um, I, I'm still writing that presentation. But just to give you a sense, um, since I've written the book, I've become really interested in thinking about, well, what's the next step? So I've asked some questions about property. And uh, with that, I've become really interested in how do animals circulate as commodities within capitalism? And are there some interesting ways to think about animals uh, using a kind of critique of capitalism as a frame? So different animal studies scholars have done this before. I'm certainly not the first, but I think um, my, my book, The War Against Animals, gives me some, a different way, has given me a different way to approach the problem of how we think about the exploitation that's inherent to capitalism. Um, just in terms of the teaser, what I'm interested in for that speech, I've become really fascinated by thinking about value and how do we apply value to, to animals themselves. One of the, um, let's say, contradictions that I'm really interested in exploring and I'll talk about in the speech is the difference between the intrinsic use value that we have in animals and their exchange value within capitalism or their, their use value within capitalism. Um, one of the, I think, central perversities that I'm interested in that relate to our contemporary use of animals is this. At present, we have uh, industrialised vegetable food production to such an extent that, in some respects, we have enough vegetable protein to feed the whole world. And so, I mean, I think this is, it, maybe that's a contentious claim, but I feel like we have the technical means by which um, we don't need to rely on animal-based protein in the way we might have in previous periods of human existence. Simultaneously, we have the means of transport and distribution, which, again, avoids, you know, for most of the world's population, we have the capacity to distribute vegetable-based protein to everybody. We simultaneously have uh, a reduced and re reducing need to use animals as the means of production, as in labourers. Right? So animals in the Middle Ages, of course, worked farms and they actually were the machines of industry. Uh, today, we increasingly don't need to use animals for these purposes. From my perspective, this creates this quite perverse situation that today the intrinsic use value in our economy for animals is at an all-time low point for all of human history. We literally do not need to use animals. And of course, most, this is not news to most animal advocates. The flip side of this is that we use animals on a scale that is historically completely unprecedented. Um, the talk is really trying to explore uh, some of the contradictions around those, those two different use values and trying to work out whether we can use um, uh, particularly Karl Marx's work around uh, use value and exchange value to try and understand what is, what is behind this contradiction. So much to think about. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dinesh. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. That was Dr Dinesh Wadiwell from the University of Sydney and his forthcoming book, The War Against Animals, that we've been discussing in today's program is scheduled for release in August. It will be published by Brill, B-R-I-L-L. -L. 
It does have currently have a page on the Brill website, so that's www.brill.com. So you can keep your eye on that for when uh, it will be available. I'll link it to our podcast page of this program and hopefully we'll give a Facebook post at the time as well. As you heard at the end of the interview, Dr Wadiwell will be visiting Melbourne in July to take part as the opening night speaker in Institute for Critical Animal Studies Oceana Conference. The theme of the conference, as I mentioned at the top of the program, is Conflict and Struggle, Resistance and Change. Some of the other presentations uh, potentially could cover topics such as how conflict impacts on non-human animals, intersectional analysis of the animal activist movement, the criminalisation and prosecution of dissent, global power and local resistance, representations of animals in art and culture, and animals and urban-rural conflicts. They're just some of the things that may be covered in the conference, and it's not limited to that at all. Um, You'll have to get along to uh, see what else is on offer. All food provided will be vegan, and the venue has universal access. As well as the presentations by academics and activists, there will also be optional activities such as a social dinner and a visit to Big Sky Animal Sanctuary. For more information and to register, you can look up the Critical Animal Studies website. It's criticalanimalstudies.org slash Oceana hyphen conference. Again, that will be on the Facebook page and our podcast page on the Freedom of Species website. Um, An easy way to uh, find it is just Google the acronym ICAS Oceana Conference and you're sure to find it. Um, Thanks for joining us today. Thanks to our interviewee, Dr Dinesh Wadiwal. Um, Listening to today's interview again, it just reminded me that we've only scratched the surface of Dinesh's scholarly work. And so I I really encourage people who have been interested in today's program to uh, track down his work, follow it, and also read the book when it's available in August. That's it for today. You can contact us, info at freedomofspecies.org. We have Twitter, Facebook and a website. I'll leave you with another tune from Lilith Lane. And this one is called I Get Wicked.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.